Today we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that the Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. All right, I'm back here with, this is Fred Eaton. He's going to be preaching the word uh, this morning for us. He's a good friend of mine, and he's brought some of his family. He's got like 18 million people in his family. Ten, eight kids. Eight kids. Eight kids, beautiful wife, all here. Well, not all here, not but all. there's some of them. Some of them. We, ha we had to get more chairs if you would all come. <laughs> but uh, this is Fred. He's going to bring the word for us. I just want to pray for him. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to hear uh, your word preached. I, I thank you for the opportunity just to enjoy uh, the beauty of your creation, uh, breath in our lungs, and uh, Lord, we just praise your name. We also want to pray and we think of those churches that are, that are hurting uh, in the valley, mm -hmm. uh, those individuals that have lost much. Mm -hmm. uh, may you uh, direct their eyes towards you and, yes. and those that don't know you yet. Uh, may they question and, and seek and find you, the creator of all things and sovereign over all. Mm -hmm. And so as we learn from uh, the, the text this morning, uh, and may we bow our knee to you, Father. Amen. 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 Well, it's... Uh pleasure and a privilege to be with you here this morning. Um, when Jer, I was with Jer, when was that, about a month ago, and uh, he asked me to come and preach, and then he mentioned that you were going through Ephesians, and I immediately said, I want this text. This is such a great text. Um, you could go, you could live your whole life out of this text, it's like this fountain of living water that you could go to and drink deeply from every day and not even slightly begin to exhaust the kind of life and grace and goodness that comes out of this text. So I pray that this is a text you'll come to often, you'll memorize, you'll pray over, you'll just weave it into your life. There's so much here. Uh, I hope you've got your Bibles with you either on these things or a paper Bible, because this is a dense text. We're going to really get into the text this morning, and it's helpful if you uh, follow along. Now, this prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, isn't really so much a prayer as it is a prayer report. See, Paul is writing to the church here in Ephesus, 
and portions of his letter, this being one of them, back in chapter one, he had another portion where he writes to the church and tells them uh, what he's praying for them. And so this is a prayer report. And this is important for us because Paul, in a sense, is giving us an example or a model of how we should pray how we should pray for the church, how we should pray for other churches. This is a, this is a model prayer. And um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that really everything in the book of Ephesians turns on this prayer. This is, this is an important prayer. Everything sort of turns at this point in the letter and he goes into the application of all that he's been saying in the first three chapters. Everything turns on this point of prayer. And what Paul is praying is that God would graciously answer this prayer, empower this church with the fullness of his spirit so that they will be able, look at verse, uh, chapter four, verse one, so that they will be able to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. So this is a key point in the book of Ephesians. This text, we'll look at it, uh, breaks down into basically four points or four uh, sections. First of all, you've got the reason, the contents, the goal, and the assurance. Those are my points this morning. So let's begin with the reason for Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3. Paul is obviously not just sort of cutting and pasting a, a boilerplate prayer here at this point of his letter to encourage the saints in Ephesus. As I said, everything pivots on this prayer. It's a vital part of the letter. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, that wording right there at the beginning of verse 14 immediately makes us realize that he's praying in light of something he's just said. Now, if you go and you look back at verse 13, he says, I, I ask you that you would not lose heart over what I am suffering. That's what he just said in verse 13. Now, he doesn't want the church to lose heart over what he is suffering. That's a great reason for Paul to pray right here, but I don't think that's a full enough explanation for why Paul prays this prayer at this point in his letter. I think to discover the reason why Paul prays this at this point, we have to go back to chapter three, verse one. Look at chapter three, verse one. You see the exact same phrase, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then, if you notice in your ESV translation, um, there's this dash there. And that, that is good. That's indicating that really Paul breaks off from what he was about to say and he kind of launches off on a tangent. Now, if you're familiar at all with the epistles of Paul, this is not uncommon for him. In fact, this entire prayer from verse 14 to 19 is only one sentence in the original Greek. It's crazy. It's like 90 words or 87 words or something like that. But Paul breaks off the point that he started to make in chapter three, verse one, and then from chapter two 
to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 2 to verse 13, which is the last two weeks of preaching here, uh, that's his tangent that he goes off on. And so when we come to chapter 3, verse 14, it looks back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he started his thought, and now he's picking it up again. So in other words, to get the context, we've got to go back to the end of chapter 2. We're going to look at the whole Bible here. No, I'm just teasing. We've got to go back to chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, to see the thought that he was working off of that he's praying about right now. So we can't possibly do that. We can't go into the details, but it is worth looking at the end of chapter 2 briefly in verses 18 to 22. Would you look at that with me? These are such encouraging verses. He says, For through him, that is Christ, through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, that is Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You notice anything about this language at the end of chapter 2 here? What does it remind you of, this, this language that Paul is using? Well, if you're tuned in, Paul's language at the end of chapter 2 should be very reminiscent of the language that the Old Testament uses to describe the tabernacle and the temple. In fact, if you look at verse 21, Paul explicitly identifies the church as a holy temple in the Lord. And then in verse 22, he says that in him, that is Christ, you are being built together or being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the temple or the tabernacle was in the Old Testament, the place where God dwelled. And that idea of God coming and dwelling in the temple ought to make us think of the times, for example, in Exodus uh, 40, where the glory of God comes down and fills the tabernacle with his presence. Or in 2 Chronicles 7, where the glory of God, that glory cloud, comes down and fills the temple in Jerusalem. That's what ought to be in our minds as we hear Paul's language here. So our prayer this morning is really in light of that context. You've got to kind of keep this temple or tabernacle imagery in your mind to really understand the prayer. Now Paul, in his prayer, is praying about being strengthened and being built up through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the Spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost. That's when the Spirit initially filled the church. But, but Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 is really about the need for the church to be continually filled with the Spirit. In fact, 
Later on in the book, in chapter 5, verse 18, that's exactly what Paul says. Be filled with the Spirit, or it's not maybe grammatically good English, but be being filled. It's an ongoing work of the Spirit that we are to seek in our lives. Paul wants the church to continually seek the filling of the Spirit. And this must be for every healthy, growing church that is fulfilling the ministry and the mission that God in Christ has given the church, this must be the church's ongoing experience. The continual filling of the Spirit is necessary. I'm already getting a little ahead of myself, so let me just pause at this point and say the reason Paul is praying is because prayer is necessary. Prayer is vital. If the church in Ephesus or the church in North Vancouver is going to be the dwelling place for God, then prayer is essential. It's a non-negotiable. The church needs to do more than pray but the church can do nothing without prayer. At least nothing that really participates in the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. See, without earnest, honest, humble, desperate, dependent prayer, all of our labors are in vain. No prayer, no power. It's really that simple. Just as, you know, your pulse or your blood pressure are vital signs for your physical health, um, the vital sign for determining the health of the church is prayer. We must be a people of prayer. At its most basic level, our prayerfulness or our prayerlessness um, are basically an indication of who we are relying on. Let me repeat that. Your prayer life, whether you're prayerful or prayerless, that's an indication of who you're ultimately relying on. Do you rely on yourself? That'll lead to prayerlessness. Or do you rely on the Lord? And that'll lead to constant prayer. So that's why Paul prays here. It's vital, it's necessary. If anything that Paul is writing about here in the book of Ephesians is going to happen in this church, it's going to happen through prayer. So we have to ask ourselves that question. Who am I relying on? What does my prayer life say about my ultimate confidence. Well, that gets us to our second point, the contents of Paul's prayer. And this is really the meat. This is not as easy as it looks. If you dig into this text, I think the fact that the English translations uh, try and smooth out the text and make it a little easier to read, and they add words here and there, it, it doesn't make it any easier. Basically, there are two main prayer petitions here in these verses. Um, We have a 
a, a prayer for power in verse 16. And then we have a prayer for comprehension or knowledge in verse 18. So let's take those up and look at them. First, verse 16. Paul prays that, I love this, according to the riches of his glory, the Father's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul loves to use this word riches. And, and what he's doing when he's using that word, he wants us to get a hold of the super abundance of God's glorious provision to us freely and fully and continually available to us in Christ by faith. He wants us to get a hold. This is not small. This is huge. This is expanding. This is infinite. This knows no bounds or limits. And Paul uses this word riches throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 17, he highlights the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us. In chapter 1, verse 18, he focuses on the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, verse 8, he writes about the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now clearly, clearly, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ does not lack any of the means, any of the means to to bless us with all and so much more than we could ever ask him for. That's what Paul wants us to know as we look at this prayer as a model for how we pray. So in light of these glorious riches, Paul prays that the church would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants something to happen deep at the core of who we are. Now, power is another very important theme in this book of Ephesians, and I just want to look at one reference to it quickly back in chapter 1, verse 19, because that's the other place where Paul prays. And in chapter 1, verse 19, I love this language, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. How great is his power toward you through your faith in Jesus Christ? Immeasurably great. There is an immeasurable great power toward all who believe and put their hope in the resurrected reigning Christ. Oh, I just love this language. Paul, Paul wants us to get the point. He's never restraining his language because you can't restrain your language when you're talking about the triune God and what he's done for us. He explains this power from chapter 1, verse 19. He explains this power a little bit more clearly in chapter 1, verse 20 when he says, this is the power 
that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father. This is the power that God has worked in Christ to triumph over Satan, sin, and death, and to make you alive with Christ and raise you up with him and seat you with him in the heavenly places. I mean, if this wasn't in the Bible, you'd think this is fiction. This is a fairy tale. This is the power that is toward us through faith. Now, in another letter, we can't go there, but in another letter, Paul compares this power that he's talking about here to the power that God spoke into the creation by forming and filling the creation in the very beginning. Paul is praying that that power would be at work in the church, in you, to strengthen you inwardly so that you would be united strong in Christ. This is so important. Without this kind of strength that comes by the Spirit in the church, the church is fragile. The church is vulnerable. Without this power, the church is so easily overwhelmed It's so easily divided by internal or external threats. We're a sitting duck without this power. Now, the church may be physically weak. The church may be politically weak. The church may be and is socially weak. We know that. Not in telling you anything you don't know this morning. But Paul's point here is that the Spirit of God can empower the church in such a way that the world will never be able to wrap their minds around what's going on. They won't be able to understand it, explain it, and if you'll allow me, they sure as heck won't be able to overthrow it. You see, through the church, this is so important, through the church, God is, God is populating the new creation with new temples. Temples that cannot be destroyed by the Babylonian army, the Roman army, or Satan himself. We sang about it this morning. This isn't merely, please, this is not merely armchair theology for the Apostle Paul. This is something that Paul had experienced over and over again in his own life as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul lists some of his many hardships. He says, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That sounds like fun. And then he declares in verses 16 to 18, 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. See, there's something else going on in Paul's life as he faces these trials, this opposition, these hardships. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, 
our inner self, that's exactly the same language that Paul is using here in Ephesians 3. He says, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Now think about it. Here in chapter 4, Paul's affliction is light and momentary, he says. But when he described the affliction back in chapter 1, he said it was a burden that was causing him to despair even of life itself. And now here, in light of the work that the Spirit of God is doing through faith in Christ to strengthen and renew his inner man. It's a light, it's a momentary affliction. And he says, it's preparing for us, for him, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The church, by prayer, with faith in Jesus, the risen Lord, needs to be strengthened with this power. I think COVID is a small challenge for the church. I think the real challenges are just over the horizon. How will we fare? See, brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is that it's often pain It's often persecution, it's often suffering, it's often loss that is necessary in our lives for us to experience and really get a hold of and really understand how desperately weak we really, really are in order that we might truly begin to rely upon the Lord. You see, this is personal testimony. My unwillingness to really know my weakness, um, that's one of the biggest barriers. That certainly, absolutely, has been the biggest barrier in my life to experience something like this work. We love to look good. We love to look strong. We love to look like we've got it all together. We don't. We're weak. And weakness, when we know it, when we're praying honestly about it, we're desperately crying out to this Father who is gloriously rich beyond all imagining, that's when he meets us. I promise you. Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16 is highlighting this work of the Spirit as the one who strengthens the church. But then in verse 17, Paul peels back a layer of the onion. He reveals in verse 17 that it is Christ who is present through the Spirit in the church. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Seems to me, I don't know, seems to me when we talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, we often associate it with some sort of uh, you know, overwhelming, spiritual, emotionally charged experience. And I'm not saying there are not 
you know, an emotionally charged experience to have when Christ comes and dwells in us by faith here, but that's not Paul's focus here. In verse 17, Paul's focus, the reason why he's praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith is because he wants the church to embody, please hear this, he wants the church to embody Christ's character. This this priority is important in Paul's writings. He says, for example, in Galatians 4.19, he says, I am in anguish over you until Christ is formed in you. That's what he's praying about here. Christ's character is being embodied in the life of the church. This isn't an experience he's focusing on. He says in Colossians 1 that Christ in you is what? The hope of glory. Now we know in Colossians 1 verse 27 that he's talking about um, this character or this maturity in Christ because in the very next verse he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that we might present everyone mature or complete in Christ. So he's not talking about experience. He's talking about that Christ's very character is being fleshed out, being embodied in the life of the church. At the end of verse 17, Paul peels back another layer for us. English translations try and smooth this out a bit, but he simply says, in love being rooted and grounded. Now the question at this point is, um, whose love is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about the love of God toward us in Christ, or is he talking about our love for one another in the church? And I think his emphasis is on the former but he's moving toward and certainly wants to see the love of Christ fleshed out in our love for one another in the church. It's it's both and. So that brings us to our second prayer petition. Now, although verse 18, if you're reading in your ESV, verse 18 just seems to to flow right out of verse uh, 17. But in the Greek, there's actually a conjunction here, so it indicates a new point. So we should read verse 18 this way. That, there's the conjunction, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now this is important. Paul is praying that the church would be able or have the strength enough to comprehend something. And it's something very important, and we'll see in his language, it's something that's very important and very immense. It's huge. And Paul's wording here, because it requires the strength, Paul's wording here is that this is not going to be easy. You can't just go down to the grocery store and pick this up on sale. You see, whatever he wants us to comprehend here, and we'll look at that in a second, 
it's going to require the strength of all the saints working together in order to accomplish it. I'd love to go off on a tangent here. But one of our greatest enemies is that we, I'm not going off on a tangent, this is just a little tangent. Thinking of yourself as a separate, autonomous individual from everybody else, that's killing the church. You're not. Paul says in numerous places, you're members one of another. We only know who we are as Christians in light of who we are in the community with other believers. Anyway, I'm restraining myself. You'd be proud of me. So Paul wants the church together with all the saints to pull, to exercise strength, to accomplish something immensely important. Now, I don't know about you, as I read this, and he's been talking about the fullness of the Spirit and great things happening here. I don't know if you make this mistake, I certainly do, that when I think about the activity of the Holy Spirit in my life, I often think that that means immediately that things get easier, right? Do you ever make that mistake? I often think incorrectly that God's grace being poured out in my life, everything will just begin to flow. You know, uh, all those struggles will just kind of vanish. Well, that's not Paul's perspective. See, Paul's perspective is that the Spirit's work empowers, it strengthens. The Spirit enables our work. I like what Dallas Willard said. He said, God's grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. And a great example of grace-empowered effort, that's worth writing down. Grace-empowered effort. A great example of this grace-empowered effort is actually back in Colossians 1. You can turn there if you want, but... The the text I just read in Colossians 1, uh, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, in order that we might present everyone mature or complete in Christ. That text, the very next verse, verse 29, he says, for this, meaning to present everyone complete in Christ, he says, for this I toil, struggling, according to his energy that he powerfully works within me. I don't know about you, but if God was powerfully working within my life, I would think, well, this is just a cakewalk. You know, everything's easy. But that's not Paul's perspective. He's saying that he's toiling and struggling as God powerfully works within him. That's grace-empowered effort. Now, where was I? So Paul is saying here in these verses that the church needs to work hard. And let me just say, I've been so impressed this morning coming to see how hard everybody's been working, preparing for this morning. Thank you. It's wonderful. 
Paul is saying that the church has to work hard to comprehend something very important together. Look at verse 19. I don't know why translations put in the word and here. It's not there in the Greek. It simply reads, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's that's what he wants them to comprehend together with all the saints. That's what he wants them to strain together to, to comprehend. It is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this isn't knowledge merely in terms of, of information or knowledge in terms of theological propositions. This is knowing about the love of Christ in a way that surpasses knowledge. This is the sort of knowledge that comes, only comes, through living out the love of Christ together with all the saints. Has anyone ever had, found that difficult? Yeah, on occasion, it can be a little taxing. (laughs) But that's exactly what Paul is talking about. He is talking about To know something that surpasses knowledge requires all the saints, the effort of all the saints, grace-empowered effort of all the saints to love one another. I don't know about you, but I, I can imagine, you know, abstractly that I'm pretty good at loving other people. But at 56, I have a fair bit of evidence to demonstrate that I'm actually pretty bad at it. And the problem is always with those other people I'm trying to love. (laughs) Has anyone ever found that? The, The idea, the ideal, the sentiment of loving another person, and then... That doesn't quite work out the way you imagined in your armchair at home, right? Or the way you prayed about on your knees. See, this is why we need a powerful work of the Spirit. We need to strength beyond our weakness if we are going to love one another in a way that reveals to us, together with all the saints, this knowledge of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You know what I find very, very sad? is that only a few decades after Paul wrote this letter and prayed this prayer, the church had forgotten to live this way. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus Christ is evaluating the churches. He's walking amid the lampstands of the seven churches, and he says to this particular church, he commends them on a number of things, but then he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a sober word of warning from the risen Lord. He cares so much about this. And brothers and sisters, I don't know, I don't have exhaustive knowledge, but if I'm guessing, the church 
in North America, in Canada, maybe even in North Van, we need to heed this lesson, this word. We need to lean in and with grace-empowered effort, make strain together with all the saints to love one another this way. Amen? Now, I'm running out of time, but Jer always goes over time, so. Let me look, we just, well, let's move on. Verse 18, I suspect that this dimensional language that Paul uses here, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, I think this is drawn, again, remember what I said earlier on, that he's drawing from the architectural language, the architectural measurements of the tabernacle and the temple. But here, in the church, the temple is not a static structure with fixed dimensions. Here in the church, it's a living and dynamic and growing temple. It's living stones of real people learning to love together with each other. This is how the Spirit builds strong churches. And this is what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 2.20 when he said, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. I gotta move on. That brings me to the third point, the goal of Paul's prayer. The apostle's goal for praying this prayer is incredibly simple and yet breathtakingly profound. Look at the end of verse 19 that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Those words that you may be filled, North Van Shore Church, this is Paul's prayer for you, this is the way you should be praying for yourself, that you would be filled with all of the fullness, I don't understand, but that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Those words, this language, it ought to hit us like a freight train. It ought to take our breath away, what he's talking about here. This ought to stir our faith and animate our prayer and awaken in our hearts a fresh longing to understand what the church is and what the church could be. Imagine that. Brothers and sisters, to be filled with all of the fullness of God. Peter talks about being partakers of the divine nature. That's the same idea here. It's not a theological proposition we confess with our lips. This is a spiritual reality that describes the atmosphere of the church. You know, at the end of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the, the non-Christian coming into the church, and he falls down, and he worships God, and he confesses, truly, God is amongst you. That's what he's talking about. After Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, Ephesians 1, 21 to 22 tells us that God, please hear this, God the Father put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. In the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve a commission. What was it? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But Adam and Eve failed when they ate from the tree and rebelled against the Father. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was faithful to his Father when he tasted death on a tree for us. setting us free from the bondage of sin, the punishment of death, the lies of Satan, and now through the body of Christ, God's fullness is meant to flow out of the church into the world. It is in and through the church that the Spirit is working to fulfill the Father's plan that he talked about in chapter 1, verse 20, to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's what we get to be a part of. This is how Paul sees the church, and that is why he prays that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now, the problem is, of course, that if we are full of ourselves, there is no room whatsoever for the fullness of God. Fourth, and very quickly, the assurance of Paul's prayer. Verses 20 and 21, this is a separate message, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We don't have time to look at all this, but the main point is pretty clear. God is not limited. God is more than able. God is more than willing to do what is absolutely impossible for us to do. If Christianity, if being a Christian, if following Jesus was possible within our strength, well, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be following Jesus. That's part of the problem. We've, we've got in this habit of living within our parameters of what we are comfortable with. Paul has just broken out of all of those parameters for us. God is more than able to do what is impossible for any of us to do. It is my sincere prayer that God would use the significant difficulties we've all walked through in the past few years to better acquaint us with how weak and how little control we really think we have and our inability and that it would, it would foster in us, it would awaken us a, a renewed faith to begin to pray in accordance with prayers like this.
Paul prays that this prayer because he knows that the church exists as an embassy and outpost of God's kingdom. The church is where God and his people dwell together in righteousness, peace, and joy. And the church is where God demonstrates to the world what the life of heaven looks like on earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Isaiah tells us, to this one you will look upon, to him or her who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. Lord, these words from Paul cause us to tremble. Tremble in the realization that we have lived too much in our own strength, but also, Lord, to tremble with the anticipation of what you are capable of doing through a people who are submitted and prayerful and absolutely, utterly dependent upon you to do what we can't possibly do for ourselves. And so, Lord, we simply pray, help us. Pour out your Spirit. Pour your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us that we may love one another in that way that is so difficult but so possible when your grace is empowering our effort. Would you help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.